0: Thank mm-hmm. you. you are doing what you have always wanted to do because it is aligned with your highest values and this is the only way you can live a truly fulfilled life. Your host, Javlo James. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Jobla James, the host of the NJ Podcast, where we talk with people from all walks of life because I honestly believe, I don't care where it is you come from, you all have a story to share share, and a message uh, to tell. And the theme of the podcast is success is the progressive realization of worthy ideal. That means you're going after what you've always wanted to go after because it's alignment with your highest values. And that is the only way for you to live a truly fulfilled and uh, successful life life and on the show today i have a very courageous strong and um interesting uh lady um woman her name is sandy Kirkham, aka strong woman that's the nickname that i've uh, given her. and we are here to she's here to share her story um around you know being able to uh, survive uh of abuse especially especially in the christian context and the church context and how we can overcome that um, and the theme of this episode is going to be being able to confront the truth of what happened and be able to speak out uh, speak out against us so that your your story can inspire millions of others and i want to read out her bio so a church is where as an insecure 16 year old girl should feel welcome happy and most importantly safe Tragically for some, the church can become a place of great harm. Sandy Phillips Kirkham experienced the deceit and lies that come with being the victim of a wolf in sheep's clothing, her church's youth minister. Yay! That's a bit tough. Now, after decades of uh, keeping her deep secret, Sandy discovered her voice and has made it her life's work to be an advocate for others. Sandy continues to use her voice to help victims of clergy abuse. She is a highly requested speaker podcast guest, and media liaison on the topic. Sandy has spoken before the Ohio Senate, a Maryland court, and appeared on a local television show in Boston. Her story, Stolen Innocence, was told in a documentary produced by The Hope of Survivors. Sandy works with survivors, conducting victim support conferences. She has participated on panels moderated by SNAP, Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, sharing her perspective from a non-Catholic point of view. Sandy Phillips Kirkham aka Strong Woman, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Thank you, it's good to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, outside the bio, could you just uh, just give a brief synopsis of who you are, where you come from, and why it is that you are here today?
1: Uh, My name is Sandy Phillips Kirkham and I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. I've lived here all my life. I'm married with two grown children and two perfect granddaughters, and two fairly well-behaved dogs. Uh, yeah. I, I have um, been working with victims of clergy abuse for about 15 years, and it's been my joy and my sorrow as well to do this kind of work.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. So you said it's your joy
1: and your sorrow. How mm-hmm. is it a joyful experience, and how is it a, a sorrowful experience? Well, one of the things that I've often thought over the years was, what if I had heard someone's story when I was being sexually abused by my youth pastor? Because at the time, I thought I was the only one. I didn't think this Mm -hmm. was happening to anyone else. So I've often wondered how my life would have changed had I heard someone else's story. And maybe it would have given me the courage back then instead of waiting 27 years to come forward. And so my joy is when I discover that my story has an impact on another victim. And my story can be give courage and hope to another victim. And the sorrowful part of course is that mm. so many times and so often I meet a victim whose life has been destroyed by clergy sexual abuse and they have found themselves so disconnected from the church and God. And it just breaks my heart to know that this continues even so many years after my own abuse. Mm. So this is a question, so when was
0: the first time that this abuse, ha- abuse happened and like what was, how did it start? I mean.
1: Well, I, um, first of all, I was very active in the church. Uh, I started attending when I was a young child with my best friend who invited me to go. And I, I loved everything about church. It was a place I found such joy and peace. My parents were divorced. I didn't see my father much. So I had some emotional instability in my life. I, I had good parents, but, but I didn't get the attention that I thought I needed. And so the mm. church provided for me that place where I was loved by the people in the, in the church and the congregation. I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. If the doors of the church were open, I was there. I was baptized when I was 13, and my deep my faith deepened after that. Shortly after I turned 16, our church hired a new youth pastor, and he came uh, with these great ideas. He was very different than any pastor we'd seen. He was charismatic. He kind of dressed the way the young kids dressed. Yeah. He knew our music. He drove a convertible. I mean, in this in the vernacular of 70s, he was hip. He was Um, hip. He he was hip. (laughs) And And he just, yeah, and he just had a persona about him and people were just drawn to him and everyone wanted to please him. They wanted to be a part of this growing Mm -hmm. phenomenon that he had. So very early on, he chose about five of us to be his core leaders, but he really zeroed in on me um, Mm -hmm. and made it very clear that I was one of the leaders and I needed to make sure I did everything that he had asked and wanted to, and I wanted to please him. And I certainly... And like the attention that I was getting from this. And I felt that I was helping the church and I was pleasing God by doing this work. Mm. But one night uh, after a youth group meeting that was held in my home, he Mm. waited for everyone to leave. He walked over to me, told me how much he appreciated me, how much he cared for me, how much he loved me. And then he really was thankful for all the work I had been doing in the church. And then he just bent down and he kissed me. And I I was stunned. I I didn't know how to react. I thought, you know, what is he doing? But then I thought, well, this is my pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And this is a person that everyone loves in the church. So I kind of just thought maybe I misunderstood. And then I kind of rationalized it by thinking, well, this is just his way of showing how much he appreciates me. And it was really the only way I could, my 16-year-old mind could rationalize it. Throughout that following year, um, I babysat in his home and he would come home when his wife wasn't there and he would sit and talk about the Bible or we'd talk about the church and none of that really seemed out of line to me because he was my pastor. Sometimes he kissed me when he took me home, sometimes he didn't. So it was a very subtle and very determined kind of way to start breaking down the boundaries and getting me to accept this behavior to a point that finally one night he had sex with me and Mm. from that point on it changed everything because while i could rationalize the kissing i knew this was wrong but i didn't know what to do about it i didn't know who i was going to tell he promised gave me promise not to tell anyone he made it clear that if i did no one was going to believe me and and honestly, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. Yeah. And, and, and in some ways I felt this obligation that I had given my virginity to this person. And in the church that I grew up in, that was something, once you did that, you were committed to that person. Mm. And so, and then he started using, I use the term gaslighting, telling me things like this was ordained in God's eyes. We oh were married goodness. in God's eyes. He was just like David in the Bible. And so in order for me to function in this dysfunctional relationship, I, I I was accepting that because I didn't know what else to do. Mm. Um, I, I couldn't tell anyone. I felt like I was in a black hole with no way out. Um, mm. And the abuse lasted for five years. It went on that's for a, five years. That's a
0: long time until you a very a long time. Yeah.
1: And during that time, in the beginning, you know, he was very kind. He was loving in some respects. But it quickly turned very dark soon after he had sex with me, and he became controlling mm. as to who I could see, what, how I was to dress, oh um, where I could go. He, he was violent; he hit me, um, so and it felt so like he owned you. Yes, exactly. And so, and I didn't see it any way out. I, I, I just assumed that this was going to be my life. I didn't think I'd ever get married. I didn't think I'd ever mm. have children. Um, in my mind, this would only end when he said it was over.
0: Jeez. That's that's, that's that's so amazing because uh, for um i have started i started reading and started watching on the documentaries that we were talking before the um before the conversation that um sometimes the females uh, or whoever it is has been abused will not feel that it's their fault they'll feel that it was something that was supposed to happen um so for those uh, who have been uh, preyed upon who feel that it's their fault, how do they break themselves out of that mindset? I mean, because this is something, you're young, you don't know any better, persons of high authority, and now it's even more complicated because now there's the element of a higher power, so that's sort of involved now. Now your entire identity is wrapped up in this. Now Now you think that it's your fault, not the other person's fault. So how do you break out of that mindset? Because it can be very toxic, I
1: think. Right and 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 I just assumed that I must have done something to encourage him because why else would he do this this is not yeah. something that, so I did feel a lot of gain of uh, guilt and shame and felt like there was something I had done. And I thought I should have been able to say no. But Mm -hmm. you know, people need to understand when you're in a vulnerable emotional position, your coping skills are not what they would be if you were not in that position. And these men target vulnerable people, they don't go Uh after someone who's strong enough to say no. And they and again, they start very subtly. So they, they keep pushing the boundaries enough to see how far they can go. And they've already And especially in my case, he had created a dependency on him Mm -hmm. because he was helping with, you know, the fact that I didn't see my father. I looked at him as a father figure. He was giving me these positions in the church that in leadership that made me feel good. So there's this it's such a confusing part. And so when I say to victims is, you know, the first thing you need to understand that it is not your fault. You were targeted. You were taken advantage of by someone you should have been able to trust in the safest place on earth, and so therefore you didn't have the ability to say no to this person who was in authority over you. Now, that's a difficult concept for victims to accept, and it took me a long time because I kept saying to myself, "But I should have done something. I I should have done something." And, And and in the position I was, I didn't have that ability to do anything. And once he crossed that line of having sex with me. I was totally trapped. I didn't see Mm. a way out. The second thing I tell victims is you need to educate yourself. You need to understand the terms grooming, manipulation and gaslighting, because all of Mm. those things were used on you to trap you. And so once you understand those terms and understand what Mm. really did happen to you, the ability to accept the fact that this was someone who should have never done what they did to you is much easier
0: so sandy uh, like this uh, can we just zero in on those uh, three um terms um mm-hmm. especially gaslighting because it's been in my conscience for quite a while i also started uh because i was training in linguistic programming and then i came across a, a, a book that um that talks about dark techniques of <laughs> nlp and they do talk about um gaslighting you also mentioned grooming what was the other one and manipulation. And manipulation. So can we start with with what what is gaslighting? And how do we well, defend ourselves against it?
1: Well, gaslighting is a is a manipulative term psychologically, where the mm. abuser begins to change your perception of reality. So mm. when you might think something isn't right, your abuser is telling you, no, it is it's okay, it's fine. So they start using terms like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, or I never said that. Or no one's going to believe you. When you think, well, somebody might. No, no one's going to believe you, and they repeat this over and over. So to a point where your ability to see your reality as it really is yeah. is 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 it's impossible because now you're seeing the reality through what your abuser wants you to see. Mm. So, um, you know, so for instance, my abuser would tell me over and over, "No one's going to love you like I can," and that no one's oh, ever going to love you again because you're not a virgin. Well, yeah. you know, I, be, I, I began to believe that. And so mm. I truly, that's what gaslighting does. And it's a slow, manipulative process. And when you question them, they'll say things like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, or mm. why do you think you're smarter than I am? Mm-hmm. So it, it, you become to be berated to a point where you do then accept whatever that abuser wants you to see.
0: So in a sense, gaslighting is a technique where the person who's abusing you makes you feel that you're being crazy.
1: Exactly. <laughs> By
0: uh, understanding the, good, the truth.
1: Right. Yeah. That's exactly the, and that is the the, the goal of, manip- of gaslighting is to make you feel like you can't trust your own judgment and you can't mm. question him because there is no questioning someone who's already made you feel like this isn't, you're not smart enough to question me.
0: Mm. Jeez, that, that that's, that's madness. And then you talk about uh, grooming.
1: What, what's that about? Grooming is uh, to establish an, an emotional connection with the victim. So that's the, usually the first step of these perpetrators. And again, they look for vulnerable people. They look for people that they know they can manipulate and groom. Mm-hmm. And what that means is they, they set this emotional um, a connection so that you are dependent upon them and they they tell you how wonderful you are and how great you are and they make you feel good and people who again are in an emotional instability crave attention and so this attention only makes them feel better and then they begin to trust this person and what happens is they start to push the boundaries of acceptable behavior so what you wouldn't accept in some behavior in someone else You may accept in this person because they have now set you up to this point of trusting them beyond Mm -hmm. what you normally would trust someone. So, for instance, I babysat for this family. Well, he would wait till the wife left and then he would sit and talk to me about the Bible. We would spend hours talking after the kids were in bed. Well, if this had been my 30 year old neighbor down the street and he wanted to sit and talk with me all evening about whatever, I would have gone home to my mom and said, Okay, this is weird. This guy Mm -hmm. doesn't take me home after babysitting. He wants to sit and talk to me all evening. What interest? Yeah, what interest would I but because he was my pastor? Yeah, he he used that as a way to say this is normal that we're going to talk about the Bible, I'm going to give you books to read on how to help your spiritual life that Mm -hmm. he normalized inappropriate behavior. That's Mm -hmm. what grooming does.
0: Ah, okay. I see. I see. Um, and then you talk about manipulation. Although I see all these three being interlinked, but I see they also have their, right. their place.
1: They all, yeah. in fact, you know, all three of them are intertwined and they're used at different times in the abusive relationship. Yeah. So manipulation is creating situations in order to control that person. So, uh, you know, in my case, he would say, I'd like you to come and help do something at the church. Well, it wouldn't mean that's something I normally would have done, but he was asking me to do it just so he could be around me. Um, okay. it, they manipulate people and situations. And keep in mind, in a clergy situation, they're not only grooming, manipulating and gaslighting the victim. They're also doing that with the congregation because uh-huh. they do need to make everyone else around them be uh feel safe and they need to have everyone else believe that whatever they're doing is okay. And so mm-hmm. congregations don't question the pastor. Again, if it were a neighbor down the street, they might say, I don't know why he spends so much time with her. But when mm-hmm. it's the pastor, they saw it as a good thing. Well he's helping her. Mm-hmm. So those are the so it's grooming, manipulation and gaslighting. And I encourage not only victims, but I encourage church leadership to understand that terminology, because if you don't understand how these perpetrators work, Mm. you're not going to be able to identify them when they are in your midst. Yeah.
0: hundred percent. So. And they're um, there.
1: They are there. Oh Um, yes. (laughs) I mean, I I mentioned this before, but the Bible mentions 27 times about wolves in sheep's clothing. We're worn Mm. 27 times. So churches should not be surprised that these men find themselves in these places because anywhere there are vulnerable people, whether it's mm-hmm. Boy Scouts, the gymnast in Michigan, these are where these peta- pet predators find themselves. They want to find people who are involved. And the churches are full of vulnerable people because they come to yeah. the church for help.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's, that's that makes it uh, difficult. So then with uh, everything that you've gone through from a, a clergy perspective, church perspective, um, how is it that you do you have any faith whatsoever in um, the churches that are right now? Um, or is it very difficult for you to go back into? Because, I mean, for myself, what when, when I saw uh, nefarious things happening in the church that I was involved in, and I was like, I'm going to be very careful about mm-hmm. about just the church in general. I mean, I've seen uh, cases where TV ministers will come in and ask their congregation for mm-hmm. $54 million just right. so they can go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm like, can't you just put out YouTube videos for free if you want to do that? Um, and people fall for this and they give out their entire income and then um, then they... Um, <laughs> then they harm the the congregation who have so much faith in them. And then now that these issues where there's there's sexual abuse and predatory behaviors and going through what you've gone through, did that destroy your faith? What's the church or did you rebuild
1: it? Yeah, so let me say two things. One, you know, this isn't about pastor bashing. This is about education. It's about trying to prevent future abuses. So I yes. know that there are pastors out there who are very faithful to their calling, but yes. there are a lot that are not. And that's why we have to have this conversation. Yeah. The second thing I need to to, to add, I think, is um, once his actions were discovered, um, he was called in by the elders. He was told he was sorry. I'm not sure what narrative he gave or what he told them, but they took a vote to see if they could Continue to keep him as the minister, but it was decided that he would move to the next church. He was given a going away party with gifts and he was moved to the next church. Shortly oh, wow. after, yeah, shortly after his departure, I was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church and that I was no longer fit to worship in that church. And I was devastated. I was, it, that church was my whole life. I loved Damn. everything about that church. So yeah. when you ask that question, Yes, because I've often said the response of the church and how they handled me as a victim Mm -hmm. probably had more of a lifelong effect on me than the actual abuse did. Yes,
0: I get that. Yeah,
1: Church for me. So for 27 years, I kept this secret. My husband didn't know. My friends didn't know. I did go to church because I wanted my children to have that experience, but I could never engage in church in any way. I never listened Mm -hmm. to the sermon. I would Mm -hmm. block out any prayers. It was a a huge trigger factor for me. Yes, of course. Once I was able to finally tell my secret, um, church was not any, it was easier, but the trigger factors were still there. So I would say that I haven't lost my faith in God, um, Mm -hmm. but church is is, is difficult for me. It gets easier at times. Um, You know, I was someone who carried my Bible to school with me every day. I prayed every day. I had devotions. I didn't pray for 27 years. So once I began to understand what was done to me and that this wasn't God's fault, this was a man who had, who committed an evil act. I'm, I'm, I'm able to pray, but I'm still not comfortable with someone else praying or someone else saying a prayer for me. And I think Mm. that stems from the fact that here was a man that I was having sex with on Saturday night who would preach about Marriage and the sanctity of marriage and prayer on Sunday morning, and so you know to be that able must to have been sing, a
0: like a lot of cognitive of dissonance. You know? It
1: was, and and what happened was at the time, as I said, I was very active in the church. Slowly, because I felt guilty and I felt ashamed, I didn't feel worthy to be teaching Sunday school. I stopped singing in the choir. So that that pulling away from church really began during the abusive time. Um, mm. So it, it and I you know these men really steal souls. They, they, they yeah. are thieves. They're thieves of mm. souls. And the church needs to recognize that this isn't just something that victims can get over. It is, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about chapters of spiritual wounds and I talk mm. about that chapter, how we, we lose our faith. Uh, our church life is contaminated. We, mm. we don't ever have that same security and trust that we once had. And it's difficult. Um, and I mourn that loss. I mourn it. I I miss having that security in church that I once had. And in some yeah. ways, I've thought maybe it's better because I'm more alert to what goes on in churches, and that yeah. I can be aware, whereas before I wasn't.
0: Yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, that's that's really tough. I mean. Here's a place where you're supposed to be safe, but the, with the exact opposite happened uh, for you. And then now you're alert and you're like watching. I'm like, hey, I don't, I'm not 100% sure because one of these is not uh, like the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of so many vulnerable people that are in church... That's where people, uh, that's where the predators um, come in. Um, and then for you, I was watching, uh, I like watching scary movies every now and then. I, was, I recently watched The Conjuring um, this uh, past week. And then uh, they were giving the, the steps to for to demonic possession. So the first one is infestation and then it's oppression and then it's uh, actual possession. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. a type three-step thing where the first infestation is where they start breaking you down and right. then wearing you down mentally and emotionally. And then oppression, that's where it starts getting worse. And then possession is when your spirit is open, your, your defenses are down and that's when you get, get possessed. But now I'm seeing exactly the same behavior. But the difference is when the last step is you're being preyed upon with a sexually, mentally, emotionally, physically, is that the same,
1: it, it's a very good analogy. That's an, that's yeah. an excellent analogy because they, and they need all those steps to, to continue to hold you in the relationship. Um, oh yes. Because you know, it's one, and, and isolation is a huge one. Um, oh, you know, yes. He separated isolation, me yeah. from my friends because the fear of me telling someone um, he couldn't have, and you know, he made it very clear that if I were to tell anyone I would be responsible for what happened to him. Oh, wow. And so and, and, and people say, well, how did you keep that secret for 27 years? Well, you know, when, again, that gaslighting and that I, I never, ever, the words don't ever tell never left my psyche. I mean, I I knew I could never, ever tell anyone. And mm. and, and especially now, you know, once I had discovered, once people did know, I was thrown out of the church. So I, yeah. I, I, I knew the reaction of people would be to judge me and think differently of me. I mean really how bad do you have to be to be thrown out of a church I mean Jeez. I didn't I didn't want that to be known about me yeah. but it, it was really a trigger factor which I talk about in my first in chapter the first book it's that trigger factor that sent me on the edge that opened me and said you've got to deal with this it was yeah I I had trigger factors throughout my 27 years, and I was able to manage them most of the time. Sometimes they were more difficult than others and because I didn't want anyone to know why I was having this anxiety attack at this moment. Yeah. But this particular trigger was not going to go back down. And yeah. I understood, I didn't understand where, why I was having it or what I was going to do with it, but it became pretty clear to me from the beginning, I was going to have to deal with my past. And that meant I was going to have to finally reveal my secret.
0: hmm And that's a very hard secret to to bear. So uh, in that, the time that the, the, the abuse uh, started, did you ever think of saying, I need to leave? And then when you've got the courage that you, that you, that you, where you spoke out and then um, were unfairly uh, moved out of the church, when when you said, did you ask, I need to leave? And when was that point where you say, I'm going to speak out against us?
1: So I did go to him several times, um, especially in the beginning, um, because, you know, I wasn't happy in this relationship. This wasn't something yeah. normal. I mean, my friends are doing fun things and I'm 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 stuck with this married man who is abusive to me, who control me. I mean, I, I was always on edge wondering, you know, if I was going to get this good person or the one who was mean to me. So. I would go to him and, you know, I would say, I feel guilty. I can't do this anymore. He would respond in one of two ways. And of course he was, his response was based on what he assumed would be the best one for me. Mm. So I would say, I can't do this any longer. His first response would be, I need you in the ministry. I can't do this without you. The church needs you. So he played upon the guilt that, you know, I I can't leave. And this is, this is what God wants in our lives. Or he would become very angry uh, because he had hit me before, I always feared he'd hit me. So he would, you know, usually push me against the wall and say to me, "You're never going to be able to leave me. Who do you think you are to even think about Jeez. leaving me? You're a virgin. No one's going to want you." That's the gaslighting. And there I am against the wall with this bigger man telling me I'm never going to be able to leave. So eventually, I just, I just accepted the relationship because mm. I, I didn't know how to get out of it. And, and again. I really believe this would only be over when he said it was over. So once I decided to tell someone, um, I, I, I chose my best friend. Um, I didn't want to tell my husband first, even though I knew he'd be supportive. I didn't have that faith and trust because, again, for 27 years, I kept this in and I'm about to reveal it. Um, and so it took me almost 20 minutes of just sobbing before I was able to say I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. and that began my healing because I was able to finally let go of this secret. And and I tell victims secrets aren't good. They don't help you. They only hurt you because while I thought I was controlling the secret for 27 years, that secret was controlling me because I had to worry about the trigger factors. And every time I thought about the secret or what was a trigger for me, he was back in my life. He really never left. And so that abuse continued for 27 years. So Mm -hmm. Being able to tell someone was the very the beginning. The other thing that I did, um, I I decided early on that if I could find him, I was going to confront him. Yeah. Um, I didn't know where he was. I didn't even know if he was alive. Um, So I hired a private investigator and I found him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him. Mm. And that was healing for me, Um, wasn't easy. I wasn't sure what I was going to get from it. I knew what I wanted. Um, I wanted him to acknowledge the pain. I wanted him to get what he did to me. Um, he didn't. He wasn't able to do that. But it was powerful for me to be able to look at him after 27 years and say to him, I know what you did and you had no right to do it. And that, it gave me my voice back.
0: Yeah. Yeah so just so, so so to that so you were thrown out of the church after the five years from uh, when like what you're hearing so far make sure you never miss a show by clicking subscribe now button follow on youtube instagram and other platforms listed also check out the website for more information this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for the support now back to the show
1: the the abuse carried on. I'm sorry. I didn't hear your question.
0: No, I'm saying um, when, when, when was the the entire showdown when you let the church know that this is what was happening. And when you were thrown out of the church, when did that happen?
1: Okay. So that the abuse lasted. So I was 21. It went from 16 to 21. Um, Two people in the church became suspicious. They followed him one night and they um, found this in a hotel room. Um, and then, like I said, he was called into the elders. I was never called in by the elders. I was okay. never asked any questions. I was told not to tell anyone. I was told not to tell my mother. Um, it was all in an effort to protect this. Pastor and his family, so that they could move to the next church. Now, if you know anything about church life, uh, rumors tend to start in churches quite frequently and rapidly. Yes. So (laughs) it didn't, yeah, it didn't take long before rumors started flying and people were asking questions. Why was he all of a sudden being, you know, leaving to another church? So he was told that he needed to address the church and he gave a very vague and very weak confession, basically. He said, I've sinned against my wife. I've sinned against God. I'm just a man with faults and I ask your forgiveness. And that was it. Two days where, after, where I heard that
0: before. I
1: could have yeah. sworn. Two days after that confession, he asked me to meet him in a hotel room. Um, he moved to the next church where once again he committed sexual misconduct. She was in her early twenties. Um, he'd had a a long history. Once I confronted him, he admitted to a long history of sexual misconduct within the church throughout his ministry. Um, they weren't all teenagers, but it was still sexual misconduct within the church. Um, he also told me at the time he had been identified as a sexual addict. Now his supervisor is sitting in the room and I, I was like shocked. I, I thought, so how does anyone think that this man should be in the ministry? Of course. But he continues in ministry. He, uh, I think he's semi-retired now, but he yeah. remains in good standing. And wow, um, I went to his denominational leaders. I, I traveled Indianapolis to see his denominational leaders. I went to different, I wrote to his elders. I did everything I could to express my concerns about this man remaining in ministry. And I was dismissed. I was basically oh, wow. dismissed.
0: That is that's, that, that's not very comforting <laughs> for me from a, 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 like when we were talking about uh, having the faith in the church and the, and the system of the, the clergy system because
1: and, you know and keep in mind, he's very charismatic. He, he is a d- dynamic speaker. He brings in people, he brings in money. Our, uh, we, he started out as our youth minister. We went from like 25 kids to over 100 in a very short time. He was then promoted to senior minister. Again, the church just grew in numbers. I say it grew in numbers, but it didn't grow spiritually because you Mm -hmm. can't have a spiritual presence when you are being led by an evil individual. And that's what Mm -hmm. he was. Now, Mm -hmm. I will also say this wasn't the first time um, I wasn't his first victim. Uh, Shortly after arriving to our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. My elders at the time and the senior minister confronted him that he was sorry. He said it would never happen again. And he promised he would never, ever do that again. Six months later, he was kissing me in my hallway. So people need to understand that these men, um, most of them are going to repeat this behavior. I mean, it's the the facts show that this is a repetitive behavior. And, 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 and listen, these men, if they're repentant, can be forgiven. Uh, they, they deserve all the love and the grace mm. that God gives to all of us, but they mm. deserve that love and that grace sitting in the third row of the church, not, not standing in the pulpit. Yeah, and if they have a, and if they have abused children, they don't belong in the church at all. Mm. They do not they're, they've lost that privilege and they, they do, should never be around children ever again. Mm. And I also want to say to church leadership, when it involves a minor, that's against the law. They yeah. need to be reported. We don't have a committee meeting. We don't call the elders together. We don't discuss it. You report it to the proper Straight authorities. to
0: jail. That's exactly what they
1: be exactly. Yeah,
0: and then I wasn't. And not, that I doesn't was, always
1: happen. That doesn't always happen.
0: Unfortunately, not. I mean, um, I'm from Johannesburg, South Africa, and our one in nine. Women are either sexually abused or raped, and not a lot of them speak out. And then for those that do speak out, their cases are thrown out of the the, the system. So it's kind of hard for um them to go and and to speak out. So time where justice can be given out, anytime justice can be exacted, I think it, it should actually be taken um, just to send a message. Well, it has should be right because there are sometimes uh, false uh, accusations right. of misconduct and I'm not against that as well. But if, if the evidence is there and it's uh, something that did happen, something that is truthful, um, and the person who has been victimized. We should definitely just take a stand against it. And I think that's why uh, this um, keeps on going on. It's because it's not it's not punished. Like right. if I if if, if if I can like steal your book and nothing happens to me, I'm gonna keep going keep
1: on doing it because my uh, my behavior is being rewarded. So uh, I think that should happen. And. Yeah. And and clergy are no different than any other helping profession. So, Mm. you know, a doctor, a counselor, a therapist, they have sex with their clients. That's, that's, they lose their license. I mean, that is a boundary that you cannot cross. And when you're dealing with hurtful, vulnerable, emotionally unstable people, you don't have a right to take advantage of that instability. You know, a woman who walks into her pastor or clergy or rabbi's office and ask for help should not have her problems compounded by her pastor having sex with her. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell, you know, I I've also spoken at Cincinnati Christian university. I've been very fortunate that they've allowed me to come and speak to their seminary yeah. students. Yes. And so one of the things I say to them, you know, some, cause sometimes they'll say, well, what if, you know, the woman comes on to the pastor? Well, here's the thing. First of all, you should know that that whether she does or not, you don't ca- cross that boundary no matter what. But even if she does come on to you as a pastor, as a counselor, you need to see her actions as a cry for help, not an invitation to go to bed. I mean, when when she's demonstrating that kind of behavior, she's saying to you, I need help. And so many times um, victims of clergy abuse have been sexually abused prior in either in childhood or prior. Now that wasn't the case with me, but that's a very common thread. And so When someone comes to a pastor who's already been sexually abused, she's coming trusting him to do the right thing. And so she maybe even try to test him to see, you know, well, every man in my life I've ever been around has always used me sexually. And I'm going to see if he's going to do the same thing. So Mm -hmm. it's so important for pastors to understand that when you're in that office and you have that power and that authority and the ability to help someone, you need to do that. And you cannot, you cannot destroy that person by having any kind of intimate relationship with them.
0: Mm. So, uh, so it's a call for those people in a position to help another in- individual, not take advantage of them, but right. be the example that shows that, hey, maybe she's been through so many of these um, experiences and now she comes to you for help. And if you do the right thing, you, who knows? You could right. break the chain. You could then just turn that person's, person's
1: life around.
0: Hundred percent, and then yeah. now you now you want to pray on her instead of praying with her. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so Sandy, uh, what is what was the, the trigger that you talked about? Uh, that okay, it's I've been twenty seven years. I've been going through these tr- these triggers, some of the church uh, sermons and worship um, uh, pieces. And now you get to a point where I like to call it the day that turns your life around, where mm-hmm. you go through an emotional experience, a emotional trigger where you're like, okay, my life has to change. So now I need to go out and confront this because if I don't, it's going to uh, destroy me. What was that trigger after 27 That's, years?
1: So as I mentioned, he moved to another church after he left mm-hmm. our church. Yeah, And it was, um, my daughter was playing in a golf tournament in college. I was driving to this golf tournament, which was in the South, and I happened to pass a sign on the expressway of the town to which he moved after he left our church. Mm. And I saw that the name of the city, and I just, I felt his presence in the car. Mm. I, I, I felt everything about him surrounding me. I started to really lose control. So I pulled to the side of the road and got out of my car and just sat next to my car and sobbed for probably a half hour. I yeah. didn't know why I was feeling this way. I didn't know what I was gonna do with it. And I, I finally pulled myself together enough to continue on with the trip and to watch my daughter play golf. And then I got home. And for two weeks, I just I was a mess. I was—I couldn't function. I walked around the house wringing my hands, because I didn't I didn't know what to do. And, and I again, I, the thought of ever telling anyone just terrified me, it terrified me. Because the other thing here I was 49 years old at the time. And I'm thinking, if I tell someone, I'm going to get in trouble. Because yeah. that's what happened when I Someone did know back when the church found. But I also had this came back, yeah. Yeah. And I also had this fear of him. I had this fear that if I tell someone, he's gonna find me and he I'm gonna be in trouble. So I had to, you know, really, really work hard to, to do to a point where I could say to someone that I was sexually abused by my pastor. And then when I hired their private investigator, we're in there, I went with my friend, we're sitting in the office. And his secretary says to me, so uh, who is it we are looking for? And I I could not say his name because I thought, I can't tell them who this is. And at that moment, had my friend not been with me, I would have left. I would have left. I, I wouldn't have stayed. I would have thought this isn't worth it. I can't do it. So I tell victims, I totally and completely understand how hard it is to tell someone but you cannot heal. You cannot move forward if you harbor this secret, because that person is still abusing you in emotional way years after the physical abuse has ended. So as difficult as it is to tell someone that's that's what you need to do. And mm-hmm. you, you I, I recommend that they find someone outside of the church because chances are that person in the church is going to have a kind of relationship with that pastor as well. Mm. Um so it's probably better to find someone that you can trust outside of the church to first tell your story to.
0: Um mm.
1: but it's vital. It's it's so vital to be able to tell and it's freeing. I now I I sit here very calmly telling my story, but for 2 or 3 years I sobbed every time I told my story. Yeah. But that that healing began and again, I, un- I started to understand that my story had an impact on others and it was important that I tell my story.
0: Mm. So like with uh, what, what, what ended up happening to you um, from with, the, with, this, with this experience, did that have an impact on uh, being, being able to be intimate with um, any other men, especially you getting married in the relationship with your husband? Did that impact you in any kind of way?
1: Well, in the beginning, right after the relationship ended, um, I was, I had a very low self-esteem. I didn't yep. think I, I, I really, I really just saw myself as just worthless. Um, mm. and so any, any encounter that I had with any other men, um, became sexual pretty quickly just because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. That's how I, my worth was valued. Um, and that was what I, I believed. And so You know, I was promiscuous, I would say, early on. Um, Mm. Then I met my husband who was not going down that path and who treated me with respect and dignity and showed me that love did not necessarily mean that I had to be physical. Um, I fell in love with him almost immediately. Um, And so initially, I think I worried in the beginning um, how I would be with him sexually. But it it would flow very naturally because he loved me. And it was mm. it was a relationship and a sexual relationship out of love and respect. And so they were so totally different than what I had experienced. Um, you know, my abuser was violent with me. It was very much sex, and then it was over. Uh, he, he was never affectionate with me. And so having uh, my husband who showed me what respect and love could be totally changed how I responded and it so it wasn't an issue although I've talked to many victims where it is an issue and that they have difficulty being intimate uh, with their spouse so I was very fortunate that that wasn't a major problem for me
0: yeah so that's uh, that like that's that, that's amazing because um so some victims will be like I can't just even be around people who even right. remind me right. of that yeah. entire situation but you are blessed enough to um, a man and I give, you know, again,
1: I give credit to my husband on that. And, and I also think I, I was raised in a way with my own parents to know that that, what was happening to me during that abusive time, that really wasn't love. I mean, yeah. I understood that he wasn't giving me gifts. He didn't, he didn't, he never said anything nice that was, you know, he always accused me of being too fat or I didn't wear this right kind of wow. dress. I mean, it was always critical. And, and, and the moments that I would, get where I was sobbing or saying, you know, why are you so mean to me? He would turn it on to say, you know, I love you. And that was gaslighting. When I was writing the book, I found this very interesting. I was writing the book and I would come to his conversation with him and I would, he would say, you know, I love you. And then, you know, chapter two later, I'd say, he would write, you know, I love you. And I stopped for a moment and I thought, did he ever say that he loved me? he always said, you know, I you know love I you. love you. And that was the gaslighting. <laughs> and it, it was I, I never I never recognized that until I started writing the book. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I keep repeating this. Is that what he really? And I thought, yeah, you know, right. He never did say it. he never said he loved me. He always said, well, you know, I love you. You know, mm. I love you. Yeah. To a point where I thought, well, I believe that he does because he's telling me he does.
0: Oh, well, he didn't tell you.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh wow!
1: So like the, you the, know, the there's psychological some, gymnastics. Is it, like, it is, and 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 yeah. part of the abuse, and uh, many victims will identify with this. They they have to keep you in this limbo and this constant back and forth because it's the only if you if you ever get on balance and yeah. then you're able to look at the things the way they are. But mm. it is a yo-yo back and forth of emotion. Just mm. you, you you walk on eggshells. Because I never knew if he was going to be kind in some way or he was going to be angry at me. And there were many times he would say to me, you, you know, I, I'm mad at you. And I, I'd say, well, what did I do? Well, you know what you did. No, I don't. And I knew there was no point in trying to figure it out because it didn't matter. The point was he was mad at me. And, and then eventually he would be over it. And I, don't, I never knew what it was. And, and he needed to do that to keep me in line.
0: Right. Wow. So that's that's psychopathic behavior. I must say so, Well,
1: exactly. Exactly. They know so, what they're doing. They know exactly mm, what they're doing.
0: Mm. So, in in um your your journey to you know like speaking to uh, females and people being who have gone through this uh, entire um experience, uh, what was First question is, what was your darkest moment while you were going through this uh, this abusive situation? And then have you come across someone else who's had like a similar dark moment? Um, if you could share that. Um, I
1: story. think the darkest moment for me was the moment I gave up and said, I'm never going to be out of this relationship. I, oh, I remember wow. the night that I felt that um, he had, you know, he, he had just had sex with his wife and was telling me how great it was. And oh. I sat there and thought, you know, I I don't know what to do with that. And I don't, because I don't know what to do with that. This is it, this is my life. And I I just gave up and just accepted it. And that was probably the darkest moment for me when I gave up, when I just finally gave up. And and I think victims, when they've been in a relationship that is abusive like that, and again, mine was five years. So it was, there was no way out for me. other victims express that same feeling of hopelessness, because the other thing we feel is we feel alone. We don't believe anyone else has gone through this. You know, mine was before the internet and Oprah and any, you know, all of the information we have. But even with information, victims will say, but it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was is in my same situation, or it wasn't like what was happening to me. We really still believe that this is happening to no one else and no one else is going to understand if we try to tell anyone. And so we feel Mm. very alone and very isolated. The other thing is, um, and this may be hard for people to understand, there's a certain obligation that abuse victims feel toward their perpetrators, you know, so especially young children will feel this, you know, well, he gives me gifts and he, he always takes me to the park. And so I don't want to tell on him as you get, as I got older, as people get older, like for my instance, I felt this obligation because he had been so good to me in the beginning and helped me with dealing with my parents' divorce and put me in these positions of leadership in the church and made me feel special. And so there's a feeling of, of obligation, um, to our, our perpetrators, because I also knew that if I were to tell on him, um, I knew enough that this would be a bombshell, not only for him, but to the entire congregation. And did I want to be responsible for these people finding out that the person that they think practically walks on water and who has done all these wonderful things in the church, that I am now going to destroy that illusion? I mean, that would be a burden I didn't want either. So um, it, it, there's so many factors that go into why we feel so trapped and how we feel like we can't get out of it. So that dark moment was certainly that moment I felt like I had no way where to go.
0: Mm, that's that's absolutely amazing. So as part of your healing, um, you decided to start speaking out and then mm-hmm. engage on a very difficult task of putting a book together. So mm-hmm. how did that that journey play out?
1: Well, I had been doing speaking engagements, as you mentioned, and speaking at conferences. And so many times people would say to me after my story, oh, you need to write a book. Well, yeah. I had no intention of writing a book. I've never been a writer. It wasn't something I was I had a burning desire to do. But I, 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 two things happened. I became frustrated by the number of incidences I was learning about of these pastors who were being returned to the ministry. I was frustrated by church leadership saying, well, you know god forgives us so we should forgive him or it's not our place to judge so i was very frustrated by the reaction within the church and church leadership and the second reason i wrote it was again as i mentioned earlier i just felt you know my story could help someone else if i had heard someone else's story when this was happening to me maybe my life would have turned out a little bit differently so i knew that my story could have an impact and and that was the reason i wrote the book it was a difficult write at times. Um, there were times I had to stop writing to give myself a break because it's one thing um, to stand up in front of a group and say I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. It went on for five years. It's a little diff- diff- different to talk about details and to um. you know give examples and talk about you know the time that. He called me out of choir and said he had to see me for a minute in his office. The choir director, excuse me. I went into his office. He bent me over the desk and had sex with me, sent me back to choir where I sat next to his wife. You know, to, to, to relive that on wow. written paper was, was difficult. Um, and there's many instances like that in the book. And mm-hmm. that was difficult. But I also understood I couldn't write a book and just say I was sexually abused the impact had to be the details. And I tried to do it in such a way that it wasn't salacious and just for the sheer shock shock value. But that's what made the book so difficult to write. But having said that, it also was cathartic because Mm. I finally got it all out. And what it said to me is I was 16 years old and I have nothing to be ashamed of. I have nothing to be ashamed of. There are many Mm. things in the book that are embarrassing I'm not ashamed of those things because what was done to me was wrong and it should never yes. have happened. It should never yeah, have happened.
0: It should never have happened. And my gosh, man, you were a child. Right. I mean, 16 year a child. Some people are 35 as little children, but you know Like you were a child. You were innocent. You were so and proud. I think
1: that, I think that was part of the problem in, in, for me in the sense how the church responded because it, it was, I was 21 when it ended. And he called me after he was, in with the elders and said, I need you to tell them that if they ask you, you tell them this has only been going on a year. So, and they never did ask me, but had they asked me, I would have done exactly what he told me to do. And that would have been to lie and say, no, this started when I was 20. And I think he did that for two reasons. One, um, I don't think he obviously wanted them to know I was 16 when he first kissed me. But the second thing was, he was at our church for five years. So he had to look at them and say the entire time of this ministry that I've been here, I've been Mm -hmm. having sex with this person. Yes. And And so it's, it's, yes. And it's easier to be forgiven for saying I made a mistake and it was, you know, it was a year other than it's been going on for five years. It made it a little more difficult for them to accept. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the narrative that they got was not the truth. It was not accurate. Um, Now in, I also decided that not only did I want to confront my abuser, but I went back to the church where this happened and asked for a meeting of the current elders. And none of them were in position at the time. And I wasn't looking to blame them, but I also wanted an acknowledgement from them that what was done to me at that time was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that I wanted to be welcomed back in that church, whether I'd ever go back there or not, but, um, and they were very gracious. They were very willing to do that. Some of the people were there at the time and remembered the, Sexual abuse. Um, I think at the time they saw it as an affair; they didn't mm. see it as sexual abuse. But I, having to confront the current elders, and I don't say confront because they allowed me to have the meeting, was very instrumental in my healing. And I will be always grateful for them to allow me to come and mm. tell the truth, which they didn't know twenty-seven years earlier, and that truth needed to be told now.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. They say the truth shall set you free, but only once it's done with you. Um, so it's a question, um, with any of these encounters, were any of those against your will? Or Say that like again. A, uh, well, if any of the encounters were, were they all against your will? Such as, uh, like, were, like, were after,
1: after, your, after him, after the sexual abuse with my pastor?
0: No, 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 no. Like during, during, uh, like during the entire thing. Oh, like, well, sure. There life?
1: were, there were several times where, yes, it was just a physical, you know, uh, he was going to have sex with me, whether I wanted it or not.
0: Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh
1: yes. That, and and that wasn't a lot of times, I don't want to give the impression. Um, but there were times, yes, that, that, um, and I won't I'll give a tease to the book, but there was an incident in particular, um, that I was emotionally distraught and he, it, he dismissed that and he was going to have sex with me because he wanted to have sex with me
0: jesus yeah. <laughs> so you're just taking your entire power away so um so then like your husband is a is the mvp you know he's he the most valuable player yes <laughs> he
1: he's most number valuable. 40 he's number 40 in the book and there's there's, there's number, a reason for that but he's number 40 not number 40. Uh, <laughs> uh, and not don't get it in the wrong way but he's <laughs> if there's a reason You'll, yeah isn't, isn't
0: 40 like uh it's very important number the bible read. But anyway, he's he's the MVP because uh, for him to um, embrace you the way that he's embraced you, made you feel the the way way that you felt. And then obviously when this came out, he didn't just pack up his bags and say, I'm out. He stayed and he supported you. Um, So how did he support you once you said, listen, uh, honey, this is what happened. And this is how it came across. How was that interaction like? And how did he support you throughout uh, going forward from once the secret was revealed?
1: Well, if the first thing he was very um kind and loving. He he didn't judge me. Um I actually called him one day and said, "Oh, I let's meet for dinner one night." And I went to his office and it I I was just a mess trying to tell him what had happened to me. I think his first concern was how this affected me and where I was going to go forward. And when I told him that I wanted to confront my abuser, he was I think that was he was cautious about that because he was afraid of how that would affect me. He was worried that I would have expectations that this was not going to be what I hoped would happen. So that was his first concern was you know where I was emotionally with this. Then he, you know, his he said to me, Sandy, no one can know what this feels like. No one knows what you're going through, and only you can decide what you need to do. And so whatever it is you think you need to do, I will support you. Now You know, I think when I wrote the book, he was concerned, um, not for himself and what I was revealing in the book. I think he was concerned about my grandchildren reading it someday. But, you know, I explained to him, I said, when they read this and they're old enough to read it, I hope they see that this was an event. This was not an event. This was something that was done to me and that I came through it. And I came through it as a strong person and I was courageous enough to overcome. And that's what I hope the lesson they would get from it. but as far as supporting me throughout, he was always, always just, it was whatever I thought I needed to do. And the other gift that he gave me, he said to me, you only share what you want to share with me. I don't need to know any more than you need to tell me. And that was a huge relief to me. Um Because again, even though I knew what was done to me was wrong and it wasn't my fault, it still was embarrassing to have to share some things that I didn't want to have to share. Um, So, yeah, I and but I tell people if you don't have that spouse, you know, you need to find a support person. There are people who will support you and be your support. And it's vital to have that person in your corner um, because it's tough to go through this alone, and healing is difficult you take two steps forward, one step back. It it just it it's a process that takes a lot of time and I encourage victims that you, you're not going to feel like you're going to make it some days. Yeah. But yeah. each day gets better and you will make it with work. Yeah. Um and I go back to you've got to tell somebody and then you've yeah. got to educate yourself. You you yeah. find everything you can whether it's even abuse whether it's clergy or not you know mm-hmm. because abuse is horrific no matter you know the clergy what? just adds another dimension to it yeah it does yeah yeah
0: yeah so um on your path to you being healed and the shout out to the mvp for being a good um example of what men should be because we have uh, a shortage of good men out there <laughs> and he's an example of what a good man would do in such a situation so shout out shout out to him uh the mvp so on your path to healing what was the most helpful thing um outside of the support group and you speaking out what was the thing that you know just
1: um this may sound surprising but i was finally um able to forgive him now let me clarify what i meant mean by yeah. forgiving. Um, I call it unburdening myself. I was Burdening going yourself. to let go of this man who was still controlling my life because for 27 years, I carried guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And then after I was able to speak out and finally talk about my abuse, then I was carrying anger and resentment. Yeah, And I was angry that this man still remained in ministry. I was angry that he was going to really no consequences were going to happen because of what he had done to me and to other women. Yes. And so I carried that with me. And what I was finally discovering was I was channeling all this anger and frustration and nothing was changing. Mm. I would wake up in the morning and, and be angry. And I think I bet he wakes up in the morning and he's having a good day. My anger and frustration was doing nothing to him.
0: Yeah.
1: It was doing everything, it was just, I couldn't enjoy my family. I couldn't enjoy Mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live the life that I was meant to live and not the one that he created. And as long as I held on to this anger and resentment, I had to, now forgiveness doesn't mean I forget. It doesn't mean I remain silent. It doesn't mean that I don't, that I condone that behavior. But Mm -hmm. what it meant for me was, how can I channel that into something else? And so for me, it was. I've started volunteering for the Hope of Survivors Ministry. Mm-hmm. I began speaking to other victims. That's how I channeled it. I gave up trying to change church structure. Yeah, I, I can't do that. I, I I can tell my story if someone wants to listen. That's great, but I channeled my mission and my ministry toward helping other victims and telling my story. So mm. it was a matter. And now I say again, it wasn't easy to do. It was two years before I finally was able to let go. So it's an yeah. unburdening. It's really just unburdening yourself and saying, I'm not going to let this person be in my life. Because as long as I was thinking about him, he was still in my life. And I didn't mm. want him in my life any longer. So that's that was my biggest probably aha moment to finally be able to say, you know what? I I don't care what he's doing. I don't care what's going on in his life because I'm living my life.
0: So what do do you say to those who don't want to, like not don't want to have a hard time getting to the place where you got, where you say, I'm going to let go of what happened. I'm not going to forget I'm not going to say it's okay. I'm going to carry on speaking out, but I'm not going to let what happened have the power over me. Some people have, it's really difficult. They don't have the, the strength to sort of forgive. What do you say to a person who is harboring that unforgiveness?
1: Um, well, first I would say it's an exercise. I mean, that moment that you feel that anger, it's it's almost like a physical exercise. You have to make yourself stop and mm-hmm. say, I'm going to... For me, it was, I'm, I'm going to stop and I'm going to find something else. I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to think about it now. That, and that was an exercise that each time I would do it, it got a little bit easier. And I, I guess for me, it I just, I was tired. I was tired of the anger. I was tired of it. And I wanted to to live my life and I couldn't mm. do that. And so I think it's a decision you you have to make. It's a, It's an actual decision. I'm no longer going to do this. And it it wasn't helpful to me. Um, And again, I think it's a difficult thing to do, but it's worthwhile to make that effort to try and do it. Um, Mm -hmm. It it just wasn't serving its purpose for me. It didn't help me. And so I said, I'm done with it. I got to figure out how to do something else. And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't times when I think of things. oh, you know, I can't believe he's still in the ministry and I can't, I, mean, I get a little upset and anger. There's justifiable anger. It's not like yeah. I just, you know, say, oh, well, whatever. I mean, there is justifiable anger. Um, yes. But what I discovered is nothing was going to change. But my anger wasn't changing anything. Um, mm. And that was that's sort of how I let go of it. But it, it's a conscientious. You got to think about it and say, I'm just going to I'm going to make my mind up that I've got to figure out a way to do this. Um, it's I think it's an unknown the quotes unknown as far as who said it, but, you know, you know, it, they said resentment and anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die.
0: Yeah.
1: Um yeah. It, 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 I think that was T.D. James who said that. Was yeah. it? I, I never could find it. So but I think <laughs> it's, I think it's a great example. You know, it's yeah. perfect. You, you it, it eats away at you from the inside out um, and mm. really destroys your life.
0: Yeah. So what do you, like you said you had conversations with uh, seminary students about mm-hmm. your experience and what they should be aware of uh what do you say to those especially uh, myself we were talking before the uh, the recording is you you're seeing all these things in in the church and the ministry that you don't agree with many people are stealing Many people are being guilty of sexual abuse and then things are not progressing those people who say i don't want to touch the, the ministry i don't want to touch church what do you say to people who've going to that point where like I'm very skeptical of what's going on there. I'm just going to distance myself. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I would say first, it's probably understandable because there is, as you say, many things with we see within the church walls that do not represent a Christian life or what, you know, God would want in that. So I I think it's understandable. Um, But as I said earlier, you know, there are pastors and there are churches that are making the effort to do the right thing. Um, you know, certainly being in the ministry is not for everyone. And mm-hmm. if it's not your calling, then you shouldn't be there. Um, and I think that's where some of these men, uh, they go into the ministry for the wrong reasons and they find themselves in a powerful position and they like the attention. And that's what that's what drives them, not the biblical Aspect of it per se. Yeah. They like they like being in charge. They like having control. There's an excellent book called "The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse." It was one of the first books that I read that explained how these men sometimes can get in these positions, and they they use that spiritual um, their their uh, education, they use their guidance as a weapon against the the people in their church, almost as an emotional weapon. Um, so. Yeah, I don't think it's for everyone, and I think people need to evaluate their ministers when they hire them um, mm-hmm. to 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 see if this is someone who is going to be a fit for their for their pastor um, to be in the ministry. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's that, that's very important, and uh, so like I know that the. Bigger story that came out about you know sexual abuse happened in the Catholic Church mm-hmm. with all those stories that were happening there. But you said you didn't come from a, a Catholic Church, so it was like well, what it was, was it a charismatic church. What what, what, what It's um,
1: it, it? it's a Christian church, Church of Christ. It's kind of an um, someone we might describe as evangelical. Um, evangelical. Oh, okay. Sometime to the Baptist church. Um, you, you know the difference with a Catholic church is that um, most of the victims, not all and many are not are uh, our, our young boys and young yeah. girls, um, is is the churches in different denominations, there tends to be teenage girls and, and women in the church. Um, and I think, you know, the Catholic church, you know, their their major fault in the beginning was the cover-up. I mean, mm. you know, no one, uh, and I'd say this to church leaders, you know, no one faults you for the first time that someone in your church is found to ha- committed sexual misconduct. It's what you do with it that mm. you are judged by. And in, in my case, again, they knew of an incident prior to coming to our church yeah. and they kept it from the congregation. They didn't, they didn't, not only did they keep it in the congregation, they probably should have fired the guy on the spot to say, you 100%. know, this is something, you know, but the fact that they, 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 they too swept it under the rug. Um And, and churches will say, well, you know, their, their um reasoning is we, you know, we don't want to embarrass the church and we don't want people to think, Bad of the church. They only think bad of the church when they find out you've swept it under the rug and that you continue to support these perpetrators. That's what they're judging you on. Um, And once you're aware of one instance, you might say, well, we didn't have any idea and we we had no clue that this man had this in his background. But once you're aware, you can no longer use that as an excuse. You Mm. now know. Um, and, And again, you know, I became collateral damage so that this man could keep his job, basically. That's what yeah. they were saying. Okay, we, we forgive you. We're You know, you say you're sorry you did this. We're like to continue as a minister in our church. And therefore, I became another victim. I became collateral damage so this man could keep his job. And I don't think that's God's intention. You know, yeah. to... He-
0: you became no. a scapegoat, <laughs>
1: exactly. And basically, you know, it, yeah. And and basically, whether they were saying it outright, what they were saying was, "We're willing to risk any teenage girl in this church so that he can keep his job."
0: One hundred percent.
1: And they don't have a right to do that. They don't have a right to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: And churches so still they do that.
0: An yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. They still they still continue to and again churches go back to you know well, we can't judge and we should be forgiving him because we're forgiven. But we're not judging his soul. We're judging whether he's capable of doing his job. That's what you're yeah. judging. Yeah. Um, and so, and again, you can forgive that person, but it's not just about a moral fall here. It is about a moral um, professional violation. They have they have violated the ethics of their profession, and that's why they are no longer fit to be in the ministry. If the moral aspect of it, the church can deal with it all they want, they can forgive him, they can give him counseling, whatever they want to do. But professionally, he's lost that privilege in ministry.
0: 100%. And, and, and the action needs to be taken for that because once someone finds out that, you know, this, is, this was a cover-up, you set it under the rug and you put other people's lives and basically souls in danger, we're going to be mm-hmm. like, no, I, I'm going to distance myself. I'm not too, uh, sure that I want to go there or my children should go there because right. who knows if they're going to be a victim right. of abuse because you let it happen.
1: And it's not about, you know, necessary punishment. You know, yeah. It, it's about the integrity and safety of the church. You 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 don't allow these men in the church because you want to have the integrity of the church and you want to have safety, and you can't have either one of those when you have allowed a man who has proven by his own actions that he's not fit for the ministry.
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent. should they should deal with them. So. Where, uh, Sandy Phillips Kirkham, aka Strong Woman, where can we get a a copy of uh, your book?
1: Well, let me hold, let me show you the title. This is the title. It's uh, Let Me Pray Upon You. It's available on Amazon. Okay, it's also available on my website, which is just my name, www.sandyphillipskirkham.com. Um, I would also say to victims, there's a a lot of good information on my website. I would also recommend the Hope of Survivors website. Um, Great, great resource for victims and for church leadership. And then in the back of my book, there's um, resources for um, victims and church leadership as well, because education is going to be the key to a lot of this. Because if we don't understand clergy sexual abuse and how it happens and why it happens and how we should handle it, we are never going to be able to respond appropriately to it and, and respond lovingly and caringly to the victims as well.
0: Hundred percent. So, is it only on physical copy or is a an ebook uh, available? And there's an
1: ebook available. It's not on audio, but there's an ebook available as well on Amazon. Fantastic.
0: Ah, mm-hmm. fantastic! Guess yeah. what I'm reading tonight? Yes, <laughs> and gifting it to uh, some of my colleagues that I know. So, um, as we uh, go to the uh, conclusion of this, there's also something that I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that I should bring about because I don't think it, it applies, but I'll, I'll just I'll ask anyway. Okay. is the, the racial and cultural divide of, of, of abuse. Because I know that, uh, for example, you being a Caucasian woman might go through this experience, you'll think, oh no, oh, it's only me and people who look like me who go through mm-hmm. this. However, as I can tell you, as, as a Black African and as this, this happens to us uh, 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 as well. So what about a person mm-hmm. who says, is this actually cross-cultural? Does it happen across races, cultures, and, and creeds? Does this type of abuse happen uh, to everybody? So that they can be like, she sadly she looks different from me. Maybe her experience is different. So her story is different to mine. So my story is not going to be validated. So does um, this yeah. uh, advice that you give apply yeah. to now My
1: message goes across. And, and, and the thing is, is these perpetrators, regardless of their background their color of their skin they all have the same playbook they're all using uh, the same same, same
0: book they say yes
1: exactly <laughs> and they're using you know the grooming the manipulation the isolation the gaslight they target vulnerable people so doesn't matter what color your skin is if you're vulnerable you can be a target to these men and i always say they have a sixth sense they they know how to pick out the people who are going to be so easily trapped by them. So, Mm. you know, yes, my story is different. I'm a suburban white woman living in the United States, but my experience will resonate with other victims and I've, I've seen that you know like i said when i've counseled victims we're we're all amazed we're all amazed at how similar our stories are uh-huh. in the sense so many of them said oh my gosh he said the same thing that he was like david in the bible that's a classic that's a classic they all <laughs> use that <laughs> this us- be
0: david alone david was yeah. messed yeah. up but yeah. you're okay <laughs>
1: But that they love being the example of David. That's just their, you know, that's their thing. And and the other one is uh, don't lean on your own understanding you know, so, so that we're supposed to listen to him because he's more spiritual and he knows more. I mean, we oh, all wow. sit there and say, oh, yeah, he said that to me, too. So um, and not to be light and funny about it, but I, really, they've got a playbook that they use. So while how we respond to our trauma can be different because yeah. of our past experiences, the actual abuse has so many similarities that um, it, it's frightening, really. It's frightening. So
0: what was some of the most, re- now that you look at it retrospectively and on this journey that you've been on, what are some of the most ridiculous things that you that you heard um, about this entire thing? For example, um, like David from the Bible and you know stuff like that. What are some of the more ridiculous things? Oh, about
1: it? That was a me... complete lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Um, well, you know, he said we were married in God's eyes. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that was another one that we were married. I couldn't correct you that one out. That out. Um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, from a, the other standpoint of not, it's not ridiculous as much, but then church leaders, church members would say to me, you know, well, look at all the good he's done. Oh, wow! <laughs> and I would think, well, that's because you saw that side of him, but you didn't see him through the week when I saw him. And yes. so that was always, you know, I wanted to think, and, 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 the bottom line is, this isn't about we get scales. Like he did this many good things, and need this bad thing. So this outweigh, that's not what this is about. It doesn't matter how many good things he, and the good things are done as a disguise anyway. He has to pretend like he's a good person yeah. so that he can fool everyone in the congregation. Um, mm. so I don't know if I quite answered your question, yeah. but, um, yeah, I'm
0: sure I'll that, think of a few more things after we're finished. That's fine. All right, cool. So, um, Sandy, so um, that's one of the most, um, you know, the hardest things is for someone who had uh, faith in a person, uh, for that faith to be shattered. And then for a person to hear your story and to be like saying there's a lot of, this is, this is, this is unjust. So for a person whose entire world has just collapsed because they looked up to this person, they are a symbol of goodness and greatness, and then that person has fallen down. And then they see your story and say, well, well actually, the people are actually being hurt. How, how can you get a person's views to be more balanced so that they don't have this, you know, what do you call this, uh, have a God complex to people who are actually scum sometimes and then to be able to validate your story to like okay Sandy actually went through some dreadful stuff even though she's not as prominent as the perpetrator how do we how how do we get people to come see the, the the balance and
1: well, I think the, the, the first key that, you know, is that you understand that, you know, it wasn't your fault and you have to have mm-hmm. that, that self worth and that shame and that guilt that you're carrying needs to let you let go of that because you, you have nothing to feel guilty and, and ashamed about. Um, and, and then for me, I, I came to the conclusion, you know, I began to understand that God had nothing to do with this, that God had nothing to do with this. And so when people say to me, yeah, well, God had a purpose, God had a reason. No, he didn't. He wept and, for me, for the pain that I was going through. This was not God. Um, That is that one. Yes. I've used it for a good purpose and I've taken that pain and trauma and funneled it into a good place, but that's not because God said, Oh, I want this to happen to her so she can do this later in life. Um, And, and the other thing I, I, I say about that is God's a pretty big God. If you believe in God he understands if you have your doubts and I've had a victim say to me, I don't believe in God anymore. And I Mm. said, I understand that. And God understands that because of what you've been through. You cannot people who've been sexually abused within the church and by a pastor or a priest or a rabbi, it, it, it can destroy your faith in God and belief in God. And that's okay at the moment. And, and if you can get, get back there, then you, you do that, but you, you don't, I think victims try to rush themselves into thinking, Oh, you know, I was a spiritual person before this happened and now I got to get back to where I was, you know, it changes you abuse, whether it's in the church or not, it changes a person now Mm -hmm. it, 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 and I'll say this to victims and maybe this can be our last, you know, um, hope for victims, but your abuse will always be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to define your life. It doesn't have to say who you are and that takes time, but as abuse victims we feel like this is who we are and and and, and that's not that's not the truth the truth is yeah. you are a unique wonderful individual who can find her way back or his way back and that's my hope that you you will and um i pray that 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 will be a part of your life someday that you can say it happened but it's not who i am
0: yes 100% Amen. (laughs) We'll go with that. So thank you. So thank you very much, uh, Sandy Phillips Kirkham, aka Strong Woman, who's my. I love you. You are great. uh, Thank you. The most valuable player. Uh, What's your husband's name? His name is Bill. Bill. Yes, they, well, yes. Build the build the most valuable player. So um, there's a gentleman that has been uh, Sandy Phillips Kirkham, aka Strong Woman, and she has just been <laughs> absolutely fantastic and vulnerable and very authoritative in um, sharing the story of uh, uh, sexual abuse within the clergy. And hopefully you've gotten um, a lot of lessons to how you can identify your predatory behaviors. And it's okay that you've gone through this experience and that it's okay for you to speak out and it's okay for you to seek out help. Right. And be angry, be frustrated, but at least, you know, attack that, 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 that what happened and face the truth so that you can use that pain uh, to a uh, positive result. And you can find her at uh, www.sandyphillipskirkham.com and where you can get her book, um, which is Let Me Pray Upon You very very um, inter- interesting uh, book based on the cover that I've seen and it's uh, definitely life-changing and, and uh, transformative and uh, yeah so at the end of the show notes I'll share where they can find you where they can connect with you okay. and hopefully you got this um, a lot of value from this and remember family out there that success is a progressive realization of a worthy ideal that means you're going after what you've always wanted to go after and it's aligned with the highest values and that is the only way for you to live a truly fulfilled fulfilled and successful life. So go out there and change the world because you're the only person I can. Thank you very much, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode on the NJ Podcast. Make sure to visit the website the njpodcast.captivateair.fm where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, all the other podcast platforms or via RSS so you never miss a show. You can also find the video content on the YouTube channel and Instagram page. That will be James on YouTube and njablo.j.nagosi for Instagram. Please subscribe and follow on those platforms as well. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on the podcast platforms, or if you'd like to tell a friend about the show, that will help us out too. If you'd like more information about published or upcoming books, visit www.njablojames.com for more information. Please reach out if you'd like to share what you would like to hear and which guests should be invited to the show. And remember, success is a progressive realization of a worthy ideal, which means that you are doing what you have always wanted to do because it is aligned with your highest values, and this is the only way you can live a truly fulfilled life. Now just chill until the next episode.